Amen. So Luke chapter number nine, we're beginning in verse number 51. We're looking at a particular village that the Lord Jesus was coming to. Now, we're not told the name of the village, but we're going to name it today. The, the, the name of this village is Affirmationville. Affirmationville is where people want to live today. Affirmationville, we're just, it, that's not the actual name, but we're calling it that. Because the Bible doesn't say what the name is. But let's pick this up in verse number 51. It says, And it came to pass, when the time was come, that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and sent messengers before his face. And they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. Well, everything seems great now. However, there's a problem. The Samaritans and the Jews didn't get along. And in order for Jesus to go where he wants to go, he's going to travel through this particular village of the Samaritans. Now, he sends people ahead of him to make preparations, that is, to get everything ready, find a place to, to stay at. How many of you know Jesus didn't go around on a golden Rolls Royce or anything like that? So they went ahead of time, and they were making the way before the king, and he comes up into this village, and look what happens in verse number 51. It says, and they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, will thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? even as Elijah did. Now, that's some devout disciples right there. They didn't want to receive Jesus, and they were ready to destroy the whole village. Let's just get rid of it. But as he turned and rebuked them and said, you know not what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went, to another village. Now here's something important I want you to see as you come up into this passage. The Lord Jesus is going through the village of the Samaritans and they won't receive him. Why not? What was it about Jesus? Was it because he was a Jew? No. Was it because of his name? No. Was it because he had many disciples? No. What was it about him that caused them to not receive him? Was it because he did miracles like in other towns where he cast out evil spirits and they took all the swine over the cliff? No. What is it about this town? Why is it that they rejected Jesus? Well, number one, I want you to see that his face was towards Jerusalem. Is it, is the Bible describes here that it, the time's drawing near and he knows that it's about time to go to Calvary. Calvary is where he's going to atone for the sins of the world. And it's where he's going to purchase your soul. It's where he's going to purchase your liberty. The Bible says in Hebrews that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So there was a joy, there was something there, that, and he desired to offer himself that the Father may be pleased and just in saving you. Now here we see an important principle though. His face is towards Jerusalem. That doesn't mean a lot to us, especially in the New Testament. The Jerusalem, what was significant about Jerusalem at the time? That's where the temple was. That's where the temple was. The temple was in Jerusalem. This is where the high priest was. It's where the sacrifices were offered. And in fact, if you're going to be the Passover lamb, that's where you'd probably be sacrificed on Passover. Now, what we see, though, is that as he's going, his face is towards Jerusalem. He's passing through Samaria. What about it? Did you know that in, in, in these villages of Samaria, they had their own temple? They had their own temple. That, now, they lived relatively close to Jerusalem. But because of an age-old debate and discussion, they worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... Not the way that the Bible says to worship him, but the way they wanted to worship him. So instead of worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob 
as the Bible says to do. They chose to make their own temple, create their own priesthood, and do things the way they wanted to do. Now, Jesus, as he goes through this town, is, is going to be presented with the opportunity to worship. If you will, turn, keep your finger here. Turn with me to John chapter number 4. John chapter number 4. You remember the, 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 the woman that Jesus met at the well of Jacob? If you'll go to John chapter 4 and move with me down to verse number 19. This was a woman of Samaria who wasn't supposed to interact with this Jewish prophet. It says in verse number 19, the, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our, now look, her first inclination was she finally figured out that Jesus was a prophet. If, you, if, if people today figured out that there was a prophet in their midst, they would ask, what, what lottery ticket should I buy? Where, where should I go so that I can live the most comfortable and best life for me? What's, what's God's plan for me? This kind of, this is the way the world thinks today. Notice what she asks. She said, I perceive that you're a prophet. Look at verse 20. The, the question, the question to, to settle the debate between the Samaritans and the Jews. That's, that was her question. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped in this mountain. And you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. You see that? That's the, there's, this is the biggest discussion between the Samaritans and the Jews. Sometimes throughout the Gospels, you'll hear stories about the Samaritan. They were looked as second-class citizens by the Jews. Why? Because they worshipped God the wrong way. They worshipped God the way they wanted to worship God. They did things when they wanted to do it, how they wanted to do it, and where they wanted to do it. Doesn't that sound like some people today? I'll do things how I want to do it, when I want to do it, and where I want to do it. I'll go to church when I want to go to church. I'll go to the altar when I want to go to the altar. I will worship when I feel good and ready for it, Pastor. Don't tell me to worship. I'll study the Bible when I'm ready. Will of Fortune's on. The ball game's on tonight. I'll do what I need to do. You do what you need to do. Well, the Samaritans and the Jews, they had these battles. The Jews had the scriptures. Samaritans had feelings. I don't like that. Now, way back, way back, here was, the, here was the problem. You remember the time of Nehemiah, when Nehemiah came back into the land to build the temple in Jerusalem? You remember one of the guys that was a thorn in his side, Sanballat? You remember that guy? As, as Nehemiah was building this temple, he actually had to, he had to instruct the men to build with one hand and to have a sword in the other. He actually had to tell them, as you're building, be ready to fight. Because the enemy, Sanballat and his friends, were there to try to stop this temple from being built. Sanballat had a daughter. His daughter was in an unholy marriage. And whenever they figured out that there was unholy marriages in the land, they instructed everybody to separate. They instructed everybody to separate. Rather than separate, Sanballat said, well, we'll just build our own temple and we'll start our own form of worship and we'll do our own thing. This is how denominations start today. Sometimes denominations start for good reasons. Like some people may be in a bad church and they, they get out of it. But other times, when you begin to bring the rod of correction, rather than receiving it, people will walk out and start their own movement. That's what Sanballat did. He didn't want his daughter to get out of this unholy marriage. So rather than doing that, he led his whole nation astray. He began to build his own temple. He instituted his own form of worship. He had his own sacrificial system. He had his own temple. He had his own God. 
He had his own way of doing things. And so this woman, she finally perceives that she's in front of a Jewish prophet. Her first question is, not where do I buy a lottery ticket, not what is God's plan for my life, not who am I going to marry, not how, you know, how do I get a car, none of that kind of stuff. Her first question, settle this for me. Are you guys right or are we right? Who's right? And notice the Lord's response. In verse 21, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus is telling her, look, we're right. Salvation's of the Jews. But you're missing the point because God desires not just that you go to the right place, but that you worship in the right spirit and in truth. And all the Samaritans worshipped not in truth and not in spirit. They worshipped casually, comfortably, the way they desired. Now, with, with this knowledge, you kind of see that the Samaritans had their own way of doing things. They had their own way of doing things. Now, if you look at the church in America today, you have about a thousand different views on how to do something. But the one view that is the most important is the one that is in the Word of God. If what you believe is not in the Word of God, let's just say it's an opinion. But whenever it comes to how we worship God, we must not worship on men's opinions, on our feelings, and on what makes us feel good. We must worship on how God says to worship and where God says to worship. And how? Now, one of the things that we see in this passage is that the, the, the thing that Jesus sets straight is God is a spirit. He's going to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. It'll never change. It's still that way today. In fact, now we don't go to a temple to worship, do we? We don't go to a temple to worship. We are the temple of God. Right? We are the temple of God. And what business does the temple of God have going and doing things that people are doing today? What business is it of the temple of God to go and join with harlots? Whether in reality or in our hearts. One of the things that we see here in this passage is that Jesus is prophesying and letting this woman know that the temple of God is not only going to be a physical place, but it is spiritual as well. And any person that has received Christ has become a temple unto God. He said that he bought you with his own blood. Know you not, Paul said, that you are the temple of God? Know you not that you were bought with the price, the blood of Jesus Christ? And, and, and so we see here that there's going to be a change that takes place. Not in the purity and the holiness of our worship, but in the fact that we are, we are carriers of worship. We don't go to a specific temple. We are the temple of God. Now here, if you'll turn back with me to Luke, we're going to come, come back into this. I wanted to give you just a little bit of background on the, the difference between the Samaritans and the Jews right there. Let's go through this. Number one, when Jesus was going to the Samaritan village, they received him not. Do you know how many preachers that would break today? You know what it means when it says that they received him not? It means they didn't want to listen to him. They didn't want him. They didn't want the message. They didn't want the messenger. They didn't want anything to do with it. In other words, they weren't going to go to your conference or buy your DVD. They didn't receive him. That would break most people today. 
Do you have enough of God in you to where if people reject you, you'll still worship God? Do you have enough of the Spirit of God in you that when people reject you, it doesn't bother you? You're okay. Because Jesus, it didn't mess with him. He was full of God. He is God. But when men rejected him, he just kept on mission. It didn't stop him from being who God made him to be. And if you're a child of God, he made you to be a child of God for him. His desire is that you be who he made you to be. Not that you conform to make people receive you. Anybody, anybody can conform to this world. But it takes a child of God to be transformed by the Spirit of God to stand out and live a life under God. And that's what God has called us to do. God has not called us to fit in. He's called us to stand out. Jesus could have very easily turned his attention to the temple in the Samaritan village. He could have very easily. Now, when it says that he was, he, his face was towards Jerusalem, what the Bible is telling us is that even though he was going through Samaria, he was not going to stop at their temple and worship. He was not going to indulge their sin. In other words, he was not going to affirm their false worship. Well, we should make them feel good so that, you know, we, we should give them a little bit of comfort, make them feel so good. Jesus was not going to affirm the sin. And, in, in, and he, Jesus is called a friend of sinners, but he never was friendly to sin. He was a friend to sinners, not sin. Well, Leonard Ravenhill, he said, why, why would you get involved in things that Jesus went to the cross for? And that's exactly what they were doing. They were falsely worshiping God. And you can take this and begin to see the difference between the Lord in this passage and his church today. The Lord in this, pas in this passage had boldness, tenacity, who's full of the Spirit. It didn't bother him that people didn't care for him. The Bible says in John that he came into the world and the world received him not. He came into the world and the world received him not. This is an example. It says in verse 53 that they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. Even though he was in their village, he was still facing the temple in Jerusalem. He was not going to allow them to think that what they and how they worship was okay. What about us? What about us? Now, we don't live in Samaria. People don't have a fake temple like they did. But people worship God the way they want to worship God, when they want to worship God, and in the manner they want to worship God. Are you willing to live a life that the world rejects? Because there's a problem if the world doesn't reject you, but it rejected Jesus. If the world doesn't reject me, but the world rejected Christ, and Christ is in me, it could be that I'm taking the, a, a, a bucket and I'm covering the light. It could be that I'm not allowing the Spirit of God to live through me. Because... Well, Brother Ravenhill said, how is it that the world can get on with you, but it couldn't get on with Jesus? The world thought it would be better to kill Jesus than to live with Jesus. The world thought it would be better to kill Peter than to live with Peter. The world thought it would be better to kill Paul than to live with that Paul. How is it that the world can get on with the church today? Could it be that we are maybe not as on fire as we should be? Could it be that maybe we don't have that anointing like we should? 
Could it be that we're not as salty Christians as we're supposed to be? Jesus said, what good is salt if it's lost its savor? What good is salt on your food if, it's not, if it doesn't help the food get salty? It's good for nothing, right? And that's how a lot of the church world is today. The more godless that this world becomes, the more we will not be welcomed. Well, I thought it was supposed to get better. Now, the world's getting more godless. Our society's getting more godless. The nation's getting more godless. We're killing millions of babies a year. And the church doesn't bat an eye. The, the, the world, we're, we're killing millions of babies a year at the altar of abortion for convenience. And the church would rather have conferences and worship while our nation is being destroyed with guilty blood on its hands. We see here, Jesus was not willing to affirm their false worship. How is it that the church can affirm false worship when Jesus didn't? How do we affirm it? How, how, pastor, how do we affirm false worship? When you don't call it out, you become a partaker of it. Jesus was not willing to allow the nation of Samaria to believe that they were right. Yes, he was rejected, but he didn't lose that anointing that was on his life. We see in the world today that people will allow sin in the church. They'll even allow beliefs like coexist. One of the things that you saw in the nation in the last two weeks, a man opened the, the new Congress up and prayed in the name of Brahma, a Hindu god. Our Congress in America that we believe was founded on Judeo-Christian values, they opened the new year praying to a false god. Do you know how many pastors stood up and hollered about it? You probably didn't hear much about it. Because pastors don't even bat an eye about it. Well, when we don't stand up and call it out as sin, we become a partaker by affirming it. This guy was a Methodist pastor that prayed to a false god. And I would be willing to say less than 10% of the pastors in America called it out. What's the problem? What's the problem with that? When you affirm it, when you affirm it, when you act like it's no big deal, when you look the other way, you become a partaker. You become a partaker. Well, if I stand up and say something about it, the world's going to reject me. Yes, that's the point I'm trying to make. The world should reject us. It's getting more godless. It should be rejecting, rejecting us in a greater way than ever before. The world should be less comfortable with us, and we should be less comfortable in it. We should be a thorn in the world's side. Paul was. Peter was. Jesus was, Isaiah was, Jeremiah was, Elijah was, Elisha was, the first century church was. They, they were persecuted so much they had to be scattered. They were persecuted so much they couldn't even have their own churches. How is it that our world is getting less godly but the church is more comfortable. There's a problem. There's a problem. If Jesus desired to be loved by men as much as we did, he would have made them feel okay in their false worship. We, we just want everybody to love us. We want everything to be kumbaya. The, and there's nothing wrong with wanting it to be kumbaya, but the problem is the Bible says 
that the world is going to reject Christ. And it's going to culminate in the battle of Armageddon. That's what the Bible says. The world is rejecting Christ and is going to reject Christ in a greater way. And the Antichrist is going to come in and take over. And he's going to persecute every person that doesn't take the mark of the beast. Every person that doesn't take the mark of the beast won't be able to buy or sell. Those that do take the mark of the beast will not go to heaven. There's no repentance for taking the mark of the beast. This is, the, this is where the world is headed to. It's not headed to euphoria. It's not headed to kumbaya land. It's headed to a culmination a delineation between the Antichrist and Christ. And one day soon, one day soon, the Antichrist is going to come on to the world scene. One day soon, he's going to come on to the world scene and he's going to institute a one world religion. He's going to cause people, Muslims, Hindus, quote unquote Christians, Jews, and every other faith to worship the way they want to worship, however they want to worship, so long as they don't worship Jesus. Jesus is an exclusive faith because he's the only God. He didn't say, I'm one of many ways. He didn't say, I'm one of the truths. He didn't say, you can find life in me and others. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. On this truth, the church stands. And on that truth, many fall. Jesus being the only way. There is no way to God through Brahma. And if we condone and, and, and if we accept and we don't bat an eye or raise our voice to the fact that our government is praying to a false God, there's a problem with us it's not a problem with god there's a problem with us because we would rather things continue on in joining hands with the world and having the respect of the world and standing you know shoulder to shoulder with mankind than to stand up and call that which is sin sin what is it whenever we whenever we know something's wrong what is it Whenever we know something's wrong and we don't say that it's wrong, what is that? It's a hypocritical faith. It's a hypocritical faith. That which is compromised is a hypocritical faith. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul gets in on this part. 1 Timothy chapter number 1. And we'll begin in verse number 3, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 3. Paul said, As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, when I went unto Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some, they teach no other doctrine. You know, Paul, Paul was actually, you know, very strong in this area. He said, we're not to believe any other gospel. We're not supposed to receive any other prophet or any other spirit. He said that there would be some that come and teach another Jesus. This is actual words. Do you know that there are people that preach another Jesus? Did you know that? Did you know that there's another Jesus? There is, a, there is a Jesus that exists in a bumper sticker that's called Coexist. If you look at a bumper sticker that says Coexist and it has a, the, the Muslim symbol and the Hindu symbol and it'll have a cross on there, that's the wrong Jesus. Because the Jesus of the Bible doesn't coexist with false gods. Amen. The Jesus of the Bible doesn't coexist with false religions. Amen. He is the only God. The Bible says in Isaiah that he alone is God. Beside me, there is none other. There is only one God. There are not many gods. There are not three gods. There is one God. 
Now we see here he said that he charged them to not teach any other doctrine. How many of you know that the church did though? And the church does today. Verse 4, he says, Neither give heed to fables and in endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith, so do. Now the end of the commend is charity or love out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. What does that mean? Not compromised. Faith without compromise. From which some having swerved have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. What, 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 what were these false teachers doing? They were affirming false teachers. They were teaching things that were not true so that they could have the affirmation of men. They were not teaching biblical truth. The Bible says in, in, in the book of Psalm, chapter 11, if the foundations be destroyed, what can we do? If we don't have the right foundation, if we don't have the right gospel, if we're not preaching the right Jesus, if we don't have the right spirit, we're all in a mess. The only hope that we have is Jesus Christ. The only hope that we have of eternal life is that this word is true. That this Bible is the word of God. That God is who the word of God says he is. And that he will do what he says he will do. And he confirms it with his spirit. He gives us the inner witness of his spirit to confirm his word. The church today... Church today has two choices. It can be loved and appease our godly society, our godless society. Or it can be godly and bring light to it. It's two choices. Our world today affirms so much that is not of God. I remember whenever I first got into ministry, it Guy came to me and said, I, I need you to, to pray with me and my wife. We're having problems, Pastor. Okay. Yeah, let, let's pray. Let, we'll do some marriage counseling, you know. Okay, let's do it. You start talking to the, to the quote-unquote wife, and she says, well, first off, you know, this is not my husband. Well, he said you were his wife. Well, I'm married to someone else. But if I divorced this guy, then I'm going to lose some of the benefits that the government gives. Okay. Do you know that people today live like this? Some people would rather live in sin and have an extra $100 a month from the government than to come out of sin and live holy unto God. I can't tell you how many times I've seen this. Somebody may be widowed and they receive extra money from a pension, retirement, or even the government. And if they marry someone else, they'll lose it. So they'd rather live in fornication and get that check than to live right before God. Well, why am I saying that? Because churches today don't confront those things. Churches today don't confront those things. You know why? Because you're going to have less people. You're going to have less people if you confront things like homosexuality, fornication, adultery, pornography, drugs, drunkenness. You're going to lose people. And the whole point of having churches today in America is numbers, money, buildings, prestige, books, conferences, DVDs. Got a new book. I got a revelation, and for $15.99, you can get it too. 
No prophet of God ever sold revelation. No prophet of God ever sold a revelation from God. But yet today, the church can get along as our nation falls face first into abortion, LGBT, witchcraft, drugs, pornography, the coexist belief that we all serve the one, we all serve the same God, and we just need to quit picking on each other and let each other be. Just like this Methodist preacher prayed in the name of Brahma. And he said, in every other monotheistic faith that calls on the same God. How is it that the world, the world rejected Jesus, but it is okay with us? Because we're not living the way God called us to live. God called you to stand out. God called you to come out from amongst them, to be separate unto him. The Bible says, without holiness, no man will see the Lord. We must, as the people of God, come out from amongst the world and live a separated, holy life unto God. Many people say, I don't understand. I'm unhappy. You know, I... I go to church when I can and I do what I can, but I just, I don't have the power anymore. I don't have the fire anymore. It's a lot of times it's because we haven't fully come out from the world. A lot of times it's because we're still trying to fit in in some areas instead of standing out as God called us to be. The Bible says in Peter that we're called to be holy because God's holy. If God is holy, and he is, we're supposed to be holy too. But pastor, aren't we supposed to be loving? Yes. The most loving thing that Jesus did was go to Samaria. No other Jew would have done it. No other Jew did it. He went to their village. He just didn't partake of their sin. Do you see the difference? See, we're supposed to be of the world, but not in it. We're supposed to live in the world. We're supposed to conduct our business and go to the marketplace, rub shoulders with family members that don't know Christ, but we're not supposed to partake of their sin and affirm their godlessness. And one of the reasons why the church doesn't have the power of God that it once did is because we've affirmed the sin of our society. We've thought more to have the recognition and the respect of the world than the recognition and respect of God. God forbid it. God forbid it. This season right now, I believe, is the most important season in our nation's history. Revolution was great. That was a great season. Civil War was a great season. The the, the civil rights, that was a great season. Right now, we're seeing a different kind. We're seeing a spiritual battle right now for the soul of the church. See, the nation, is, the nation thinks that it's doing right. The nation is doing the best it can do under the, under the light that it has because the church has been too busy building buildings and not building the kingdom. The nation is in the place it is right now. If we were more concerned about the kingdom of God than buildings, we would be in the marketplace with this gospel. We would not worry what people thought and whether they received us or not. And you see this with Jesus. You see this with him. He went to the Samaritan village. They didn't receive him. Guess what he did? He went to the next village. He went to the next village. So somebody rejects you, okay? Go to the next person. So somebody makes fun of you. Okay, go to the next person. He didn't let the rejection stop him. He didn't let the rejection define him. And he didn't compromise his faith and he didn't affirm their sin. But the fact that he was there showed that he loved them. Love doesn't affirm sin. 
Love calls sin out. So Jesus, it says, if, if you'll turn with me back to Luke chapter 9. Let's look at this. Luke chapter 9. They wanted his affirmation. They didn't really care so much that Jesus was there. Jesus was a healer, a prophet, a teacher, an evangelist. He worked miracles. He parted, you know, he healed. He delivered from de demonic activity. He fed 5,000. He fed 4,000. He, he did wonders. He did miracles. And he's there in their village. They didn't care about any of that. All they wanted was the, to know if he would affirm their temple of worship. Their false worship. See, we probably all know people that are living in sin today. It's pretty hard not to. One of the dangers of the church, though, is that we would rather affirm people's sin than share the truth with them. You can't love somebody while they're going to hell if you're not sharing the truth with them. Hell is a real place. And people that are liars or fornicators or adulterers or involved in homosexuality or pornography or drunkards or any of the such, the Bible says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, here's the dilemma that the church has. You may have a person that's shacked up with somebody that's not their spouse. You may have somebody that's involved in a sinful lifestyle that they shouldn't be involved in. And pastors, teachers, churches, we have the obligation to lovingly share the truth with these people. But most of the time when you do, they leave. Well, we're going backwards, Pastor. We're not going forwards. Well, we're going backwards in the eyes of the world, but not in the eyes of God. This is one of the common problems that we see in the church world today is that there's a fear of rejection. Let me ask you a question. God accepts you. There's a fear in the church world of rejection. But God accepts you in Christ Jesus. You're not accepted into the kingdom of God. You're not accepted in God's eyes because of who you are or what you've done. You're accepted in God because of your faith in Jesus Christ. You are beloved and accepted of God. Who cares if the world rejects us? But there is a tremendous amount of fear of rejection on us. Some people won't even share their faith when the Holy Spirit's convicting them or pricking them. So we see here that they wanted his affirmation. Do you know that you could become very popular right now with the LGBT crowd if you affirm their sin? You could become very popular right now with, with, with the left-wing side of our nation if you affirm their sin. Our president-elect married two men in the first homosexual wedding ceremony on federal property and still hasn't repented of it. It's our president-elect. How are we going to say God bless this guy? You see, there, there's a problem, though, because everybody wants things to get better. I want things to get godly. Make that choice. Do you want things to get easier and more comfortable, or do you want things to get godly? Make that choice. 
It would be great if those things dovetail. Eventually they will. When Christ comes back, it will definitely dovetail in the millennial reign. But until that time, there's going to be persecution on those that live for Jesus Christ. They wanted his affirmation. They didn't want his message. They didn't want his healing. They didn't want his deliverance. They didn't want the blessing of having God in their midst. They just wanted him to affirm their sinful lifestyle. Look at verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elijah did? I think that's the natural response of the disciple. Lord, get them. I'm reminded of this quote from, from Brother Ravenhill. He said that if, if, if your enemy has a social security number, you have the wrong enemy. When you think about your enemy in this world, he doesn't have a social security number. Your enemy is a spirit. Your enemy is the prince of the power of the air. Your enemy is the devil. That's what the word of God says. Your enemy is the devil. The spirit of this world, that's your enemy. Not a person. So they were ready to get them. Lord, let's call down some fire and destroy all these folks. And so Jesus is bringing correction to this village of Samaria, but guess what? He's about to bring correction to his disciples because they erred on the wrong side too. God's not calling us to go and cast fire down on all these godless people in America. That's not what God wants us to do. God wants us to bring hope to them. God wants us to bring the gospel light to them. God doesn't want us to affirm their sin. He wants us to lovingly call them out and present to them the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't help them by looking the other way while they go to hell. We don't help them by turning a blind eye to their wickedness knowing that it's going to lead them to an eternal damnation. That doesn't help them. That helps us live more comfortably in the now. But it will not help us on judgment day. Ezekiel actually said, if you know it's wrong and you don't tell them, the blood's going to be on your hands. So what did Jesus say? He said in verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them. And he said, you know not what manner of spirit you're of. All right. Now we got a little problem in the godly camp. So the Lord has, has, has not affirmed the sin of the godless world, but now he's got a problem in the church camp because now you got some folks that are ready to destroy everybody, and he rebukes them. You know what? Another thing the church has got to have in this season is a teachable spirit. A teachable spirit. You know what a teachable spirit is? Lord, show me. Lead me, Lord. I may not have all the answers, but I'm willing, Lord, to learn. I'm willing to learn, Lord. I'm willing to be, if, 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 if I need to be corrected, Lord, let it be. Let's, let's look at this. It says that James and John, they were ready to destroy. And the Lord says, you're of the wrong spirit. Most people right there, they would have left. They would have said, don't you ever say that about me. He embarrassed me in front of the whole church. He embarrassed me in front of my friends. I mean, I've served him, I've, I've loved him, I've given everything I have to this ministry, and he's just going to sit there and say that I'm of the wrong spirit. 
after all these years, after all that I've done. But if you have a teachable spirit, you learn. You learn. What was the lesson they needed to learn? He said that the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. That's our message. Our message is a, we're not here to destroy men's lives. Jesus didn't come to destroy men's lives. He came to save them. We are messengers of that gospel. We are messengers of that hope. We are here to bring the hope of Jesus Christ to those that are lost in sin, dying, and in darkness. We are here to bring hope to the hopeless, light to those in darkness, healing to those who are broken, deliverance to those who are bound, salvation to those who are lost. This is the mission of the church. Our mission is nothing more or nothing less we're not here to build monuments. We're not here to build up politicians. We're not here so that our flag will remain 100 years from now. We're here to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, to bring the message of Jesus Christ to this world. That's what he says. And look at verse 57. Well, look at the end of 56. It says, and they went to another village. Do you see that? They took it. They received that correction. And they went to the next village. You know what happened in the next village? Jesus began to minister to people because they received him. In fact, some of the Samaritans in the other villages wanted to follow Jesus. So, let's learn a couple of lessons here. Let's learn a couple of lessons the rejection of the first village didn't deter Jesus from his mission. The rejection of the first village did not deter Jesus from his mission. Will rejection deter you from your mission? Some of us haven't even got on mission yet. There's no fear of rejection because we haven't even got out on the boat yet. Let me show you something in, in the book of Philippians chapter 2. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. It says, do all things without murmurings and disputings. What about whenever they don't pick you? What about when nobody thanks you? What about when nobody calls you? What about when nobody writes you a letter? What if nobody says hi to you? What if nobody cares about you? What if nobody truly loves you? What if people forget about you? Well, let me tell you this. God hadn't forgot about you. God cares about you. God loves you. You mean the world to God. I may not mean the world to anybody else, but I mean the world to God. He died for me. He bought me with his own blood. If the world rejects us, the world rejects us. But God accepts us. So because God accepts us, we can do, we can, in Christ Jesus, we can do all things without murmuring and disputing. It takes the new creation to do it. It takes the Spirit of God to do it. If you're not walking in the power of the Spirit of God, you can't do that. You're called to do all things without, you know what, we do a disservice to the name of Christ whenever we do things with murmuring and disputing. Well, if that was me, I would have picked a different song. Well, if that was me, I would have picked a different passage of Scripture to preach from. Well, if that was me, I would, I would have went longer. I would have went shorter. I would have done it this way. I would have done it that way. It, it doesn't take a man of God to murmur. The flesh can murmur about anything. Kids murmur about whether they get the same amount of chicken nuggets. Kids can murmur about anything. It doesn't take a man of God to murmur about stuff. It takes a man of God to not murmur and not dispute. To do all things through the Spirit of God. How do you do that? Being filled with God. You can't do that in your own strength. You can't do that in your own ability. You have to have the 
filling of the Spirit of God in your life. If you don't, your flesh will take back control of your life. The Spirit of God is what the church needs more than ever. The Spirit of God, the leading of the Holy Spirit. Charles Finney said, you'll have revival when you truly want it. You don't have to sit and wait and play Uno and wait on God. He said, you'll have revival when you truly want it. If you truly seek God, you'll find God when you seek Him with what? Half your heart? Some of your heart? If you seek God, you'll find God when you seek Him on one day a month when you get good and ready. Two days a month when you feel like it. Ten minutes a day when you think about it. No, he said, when you seek God, you'll find God when you seek Him with all your heart. If you're giving God all your heart, you'll find God. You'll find Him. It says, do all things without murmurings and disputings that you may be blameless and harmless. The sons of God, without rebuke, listen to this, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, not running to city hall with the sign and banging on the door, not protesting in the street, not camping out. It says you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I've not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Paul saying, your job is to live holy in this perverse nation, shining like a light in darkness, holding forth the word of life. Look, this world needs the gospel. It doesn't need to know my opinion on economics. This world needs the gospel. It doesn't need to know my opinion on the debt of our nation or the tax rate of our nation or any other thing. This world needs the gospel from us. This world needs us to hold forth the word of life. What is that word of life? Jesus Christ. That God paid for our sins at Calvary. That he died. He came to the earth bodily. He went to the cross bodily. He died bodily. And he rose from the dead bodily on the third day. To the glory of God. Well, what is that? That gospel right there will save your soul. Not only is your sin going to be blotted out, but God will give you glory. God will give you glory. God will glorify you on judgment day. On the day that Jesus parts the sky, the trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ will rise. They're not going to rise just spiritually. They're going to rise bodily. God will glorify his children. God will glorify his children. So our job as Christians is not to blend in to a perverse and crooked nation. Our job as Christians is not to affirm a crooked and perverse nation. Our job as Christians is not to go along to get along and not make a ruckus and not make waves and to keep things in Comfortableville where it's not too hot and not too cold. Jesus said that which is lukewarm is that very thing that he would spew out of his mouth. Can you imagine something being in his mouth? And to the point where it's neither hot nor cold. This is the church in Revelation. There was a church. Listen, there was, look, he's not talking about the world. He said there's a church in the book of Revelation that was neither hot nor cold. In other words, it blended in. 
It didn't stand out. If you go and you look at that passage when he's talking about that they would be neither hot nor cold, that city had a, a, a river. Well, back then, you know, they didn't have plumbing and water on tap. When the water came down, if it was hot water, they could clean stuff. If it was cold, they could drink it. But if it was lukewarm, guess what? Bugs would live in it. Parasites would live in it. You would, you would begin to have all kinds of bacteria and, and, and things that would defile you in lukewarm water. That's why he said, he can't use you. If you're neither hot nor cold, he will spew you out. Look, he said that to the church, not the world. And if he said that to the church in Revelation, how many of you know that God doesn't change? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if he said that to the church then, what would he say to the church now? What would he say to the church that has homosexuals in the choir, behind the pulpit, in seminaries, churches that affirm abortion, churches that have pastors that pray to Brahma? The Hindu God? The churches that walk hand in hand with the godless politicians that are leading this nation? What would he say? I think calling that church lukewarm would be polite. It would be polite. So Jesus came to save, not destroy. Our job is to make sure that we're offering these people the gospel, the truth so that they may be saved. Our job is not to condemn people to hell. Our job is to give them the truth so that they can come out from the darkness and receive Christ Jesus the Lord. Our job is to share the gospel, the truth of God, so that others may be saved like we were. Let's not be you know, thinking more of ourselves than we were, but the Bible says that we were Bible says, such as you were when he talked about sin. We were all lost in our sin. We were all at one day in darkness. We were all blinded by the God of this world. We were all bound in our sin. But somewhere along the way, somebody somehow shared the gospel with you. You heard it. You believed it. And God saved you. The Spirit of God filled you and sealed you. And it is not right that the church is comfortable in the lifeboat while others drown. It's not right. Our job is to extend the life raft to others. In fact, that was D.L. Moody's mission. He said, I don't believe this, that the world's going to get better and better and better. He said, I believe, I believe that God gave me a life raft and told me to save as many as I can. That was the mission of D.L. Moody. That's, and, and he was one of the greatest evangelists our nation's ever had. There's no reason why one of you can't be a new D.L. Moody. Yourself. There's no reason why God can't use you in a great and powerful way. Some of the greatest men of God didn't get saved till they were in their mid-50s. Some of the greatest moves of God didn't happen until the church finally figured out that it was empty. And then it began to seek God. And when the church begins to come together and pray and seek God and fast together and pursue God together, God will pour out His Spirit on that church. Breathe new life into that church. Why? So that we can have good church service? Why does God fill you with the Holy Spirit? So that you can sing better in the choir? So that you can do a somersault down the middle aisle of the church? Why does God fill you with the Spirit? So that you can click your heels together during worship? No, he fills you with the Spirit so that he can send you into the darkness. 
so that he can send you in the darkness to be rejected by some and to save others. Are you willing? Are you willing? Because if you're willing to go into the dark world and bring the gospel, be rejected of some and save others, God will fill you with the Holy Ghost today. God will give you a new unction and a new power. He will put it within you a new vision, dreams, hope, destiny. Our, look, our purpose is not to retire. Our purpose is not to get a 401k so that we can sit in our recliner and, and, and get a newspaper delivered to us every day and watch the world go to hell. That is not the purpose of God for you. Our purpose is to get filled with the Spirit of God and to be used by God to bring the gospel to those that are dying and going to hell. Some even in our own families. Many ministers will tell you it takes an even greater unction from God to be able to minister to those in your own family. Some of the hardest, some of the hardest people to witness to are those in your own home or those in your own family. How much more then should we be at our altars? How much more then should we be pursuing God? We shouldn't be content. We shouldn't be content. We should contend for the Spirit of God to be used by God, not so that we can click our heels on Sunday morning, but so that we can hit the streets on Monday morning and share this gospel that saves souls, delivers drunkards, I was a lost soul. I was a drunkard. I was in my sin, but somebody shared the gospel with me. Somebody invited me to church. Somebody went to the darkness and brought the light to me. And I know they did it for you too. I know they did it for you too. Our job is not to sit in this lifeboat. Our job is to take this gospel to those that are drowning. That's why we need the Holy Spirit so that we can live a holy life and take a holy gospel to those that are dying. If you, will, if you, if you will truly seek God for that, I know without, without a shadow of a doubt, God, God will put a new, a new fire in you. And I'm telling you, you'll still, be, you'll still get rejected for it. Jesus was rejected right there. But the next town accepted him. The next town, there were people that wanted to follow him. That first town rejected him. Second town accepted him. Can you get through rejection to get to the place and purpose of God for your life? Because if you can, God can use people like that. God can use people like that. And that's, I believe God, his call on us today, his call on us today is to do exactly what this verse says. This, I believe, is what the church needs. To know God's called us to be without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. That's Jesus. Amen?